In this episode of 2000 Books, Greg McCune and I discuss why some people break through to the next level of success while others don't. We also talk about the one reason behind the dizzying success of Warren Buffett and Southwest Airlines and how Mahatma Gandhi used a similar principle. We also talk about the three key mindsets we must cultivate to break through to the next level. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Greg McCune is the CEO of This Incorporated, a company whose mission is to assist people and companies to spend 80% of their time on the vital few rather than the trivial many. His clients include Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, Symantec, Twitter, VMware, and Yahoo, to name a few. Greg is an active social innovator. He serves as a member of the board for Washington, D.C. policy group Resolve and as a mentor with Two Seeds, a nonprofit incubator for agriculture projects in Africa. He also serves as a young global leader for the World Economic Forum. Today, we're talking about his New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Greg, this is one of my favorite topics, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. And I think the subtitle really says it all, but it's one of those things we have to unpack and we have to talk about for a long time, really, to get the idea there. And um, before we get into the interview, please tell us your business story. What led you to writing this book? Well, it all started uh, 17 years ago when I was staring at a piece of paper in my hands that uh, had this question, what would you do if you could do anything? And 20 minutes, I brainstormed answers to that question. And when I was finished, what I noticed was not what was on the list, but what was not on the list. Law school was not on the list, uh, which was inconvenient because I was at the time at law school. Uh, I was going to England, and that's where I was living, that's where I was doing law. And I was in the United States, and I just had a meeting with somebody, and they had said, look, if you do decide to stay in America, you should help us do A, B, and C. And that's the beginning, because I suddenly realized, well, there's, there's something else I want to do, and Really, what I wanted to do was uh, was teach and write. And uh, there's a very particular question uh, that was embedded in the things I'd written on that piece of paper that has kept me fascinated all these years. And this was the question, why is it that otherwise successful people and companies don't break through to the next level? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I've really been pursuing all these years. And uh, I think that's that's... A lot of the times we say that the answer is in the question itself sometimes. And yeah, the, the question is so powerful because uh, as we unpack in this interview, we'll find that it has uh, a very, very important meaning behind it. But what happened in that moment when you were there and you were struggling to answer whether I should go to law school or not, what you were really saying is, should I listen to the voice inside of me or the noise outside the world that's trying to tell me to do this or do that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, Do you follow the path that you're already committed to? Uh, Do you get caught up in sunk cost bias because Mm -hmm. you're already there? I was already in, almost finished with my first year. 
I mean, what I actually did is I, after I had this brainstorm, as I thought, well, I better call my parents. And so I called a 15-digit number back to England, and my mother answers, uh, fortunately. And she listens for a while, and she says, look, I think you better talk to Dad. And so he came on the phone, and he, uh, he listened as well. Uh, and then he said this after he'd heard my thoughts. He said, look, he says, you know what we've always told you. Uh, he said, uh, he said, to thine own self be true. Mm. Uh, and that's a quote from Shakespeare, from, Shakespeare, from Hamlet, uh, mm. from uh, it's Polonius speaking to his son Laertes at a, at a crossroads in his life. To thine own self be true. And then he added this. He said, just do what is right. Let the consequences follow. And that was a very important conversation. And so I did quit law school uh, and you know, the adventure began. And from that point on, I pursued teaching and writing and, uh, and it has been this, this great adventure. Uh, and I've been glad for it. And you, you said something or your dad said something very powerful, just do what is right and let the consequences follow. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It's not. It's it's one of those things where we can spend a lifetime deliberating if that is something we have the courage to go after and do. Well, it, there were seeds right there in that conversation and that decision that uh, that have found fruition in the book Essentialism itself, uh, because uh, because really I think there is this uh, this deep trade off we all need to make. Uh, not once, but throughout life, between uh, what is popular, what everybody else is doing, uh, and, and taking that path because everybody's on it, uh, versus taking maybe a narrower path, uh, doing the right things at the right time for the right reasons. You know, the first path I think is really loosely speaking the path of the non-essentialist. Mm -hmm. uh, do a bit of everything. Do what everyone else is doing. Do what everyone else is saying to do, and you're just really keeping up with uh, with your perception or what everyone else is is committed to. Uh, that's easier, in a sense. Certainly, in the short term, it feels easier because you don't really have to make any choices. You don't have to you don't have to decide anything for yourself. You're just going along with what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then this other path, this path of is, is a path less traveled by, but is a path unquestionably, in my mind, an experience of, of higher contribution. And that is that you are, you are taking the time, you're creating the space to discern what is the essential path, what's the right path so that I can walk in that path, what yeah. is the right way so I can be going in that way. And uh, that's, that's not one more thing to add into our life. That is, um, that is the... Um, that is the life the, itself. It's, 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 it's the work of life itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and hidden in that conversation was just the ultimate power we have as human beings, the idea, the, the fact that we have choice. We have, we can choose. And um, I think you said in the book, I'm not sure who said it, but... It was the quote that my first act of free will is to believe in free will. And a lot of times in this culture today, we forget that we have this amazing, amazing, amazing thing, this ability to choose and to have free will. Yes, I, I completely concur with this, that we have this power 
of agency, of choice that cannot be given away and it cannot be taken away. Uh, it is stronger than those forces. It, it will, it's, it's always, it's eternal. It is uh, there ever present. But what it can be is forgotten. And it can be forgotten because nobody reminds us of it. It can be forgotten because we become so reactive, so jumpy, uh, frantic and frenetic about uh, the email that is just coming in, the text that's coming in, the worry that's in the back of our mind. It, it can, all of those things can consume us so much that we just forget that we, we are the agent. We're agents unto ourselves. We have the chance to be able to, to act upon our lives, uh, that we can choose our own way. Uh, one of my favorite um, paintings it's a painting I have up in my office, in fact, is by, uh, by Christensen, and it's called The Listener. Mm. And people can, who are listening today can, can go online and, and look this up by James Christensen, uh, The Listener. And what it is, it's a picture of this man sitting down, his eyes closed, as if to demonstrate that he's listening quietly to his own voice, his conscience inside. And there's a, a picture of all of these different people around him, characters from history. It's a very colorful picture, uh, you know, all trying to uh, clamor for his attention. And, uh, and he's, instead of listening to all of them, he's listening to his conscience, listening to the voice within. Beautiful, beautiful. That, that's exactly, that's exactly. He, he is making the ultimate choice in many ways to ability to listen to himself rather than outside. And uh, I, I think you started off by asking that question, what keeps successful people from, what keeps otherwise successful people from going to the next level? What is it? Well, what I noticed was that um, Silicon Valley companies that I worked with started off with a small team focused on the right few things that led to success. And with success came options and opportunities. That sounds like the right problem to have, but it does in fact turn out to be a problem if it leads to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. Mm. And so I found to my great surprise that success could become a catalyst for failure. If we didn't learn how to become successful at success, mm. and by becoming successful at success, we have uh, every right, every reason to believe that we can continue in our journey and maybe even break through to an even higher point of contribution. So if that's all true, then... We just need to learn how to do it. How do we become successful in success? So if the problem is the undisciplined pursuit of more, then the antidote is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Less but better. And I think you talk about that in the book and the idea of, you know, the fact that most of the stuff around us is noise and there is very little stuff that really matters. And Warren Buffett, of all people, he really embodies that. Tell, tell us about him. Like, how does he go about making his investment choices? Because that's such a powerful lesson for all of us. Well, first of all, he's uh, quoted, at least, as having said that the difference between successful and very successful people is the very successful people say no to almost everything. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think he's describing a, 
disagreeable people, offensive people, rude people. And he's certainly not a rude or offensive person in his way of dealing with people. But he is incredibly selective, incredibly thoughtful. And, and in fact, not just in his own life, which is relevant to us all, but even in his business in Berkshire Hathaway, really what they're doing all day long is one thing, which is exploring investment possibilities. And the answer is no all the time until it's a definite yes. Then he invests big and for the long run. Mm. That combination of selectivity in the first place and then large and long investments in the second place equal what he called a investment strategy that borders on lethargy. His words, not mine. Borders on lethargy. Can you imagine? But this is the way of the essentialist. It's saying, I'm going to be so thoughtful and careful and selective about the right few things. And then I'm going to go so strong on those few things that I will reap a very different kind of reward than the non-essentialist masses who are out doing themselves, making just a millimeter progress in a million directions you know, feeling stretched too thin at work or at home, feeling busy but not productive. I mean, this is what non-essentialism really produces. This is what the undisciplined pursuit of more really gives us. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, it, it, it's probably from the book where you, you say that 90% of the wealth, 90% of his wealth, of Warren Buffett's wealth, has come from only 10 investments, from his 10 investments, which is huge. This is exactly so, and it shouldn't surprise us because, although it is still striking, mm -hmm. uh, because what he understands and what an essentialist understands is that most of the world is just full of noise. It's just a lot of meaningless stuff, and a few things are so exceptionally valuable that if you can de determine what they are, and focus on those things, you'll get far better reward than if you just do uh, a ton of the trivial many. So it's all about finding the vital few. And the metaphor I'd recommend, uh, you know, to, to any entrepreneur is that instead of thinking that your work is like mining coal, you know, that is that you've just got to get more and more of it if you want to be more successful. You've got to suddenly wake up and go, oh, no, actually, I'm in the business of mining diamonds, Mm. So it's all about finding the right things, those few things that are incredibly valuable. I, I read years ago an idea that's very provocative to me, and it says this. It says, it says it just takes the one right idea to live like a king for the rest of your life. <laughs> so true. I find that – I found it at the time of reading it provocative. I still find it powerful. It's just about the right few things. And, ha and if you believe it, you see, if you believe as an essentialist, then you start to discover uh, that, uh, that you, you need to take the time to find those things. See, it becomes natural and instinctive. If you believe only a few things are essential and most things are non-essential, then automatically you start to say, well, therefore, I should take the time to explore these things. Therefore, I should take uh, have the courage to eliminate the non-essential things. Therefore, I should 
you know, create a system for making it as effortless as possible to mine those diamonds or to, to get those most important things done. And so I've just gone through three steps there, the three steps of being an essentialist. But they all, even if somebody doesn't learn them using the language I, you know, I, I'm presenting, it will happen spontaneously if you get the mindset of an essentialist, which is this, there's only a few things that matter, and I have the ability to choose those things. And I can discern between the trivial and the vital if I take the time to do it. You know, if you get the mindset there, then everything else will start to uh, happen automatically, will start to happen spontaneously. And so I really believe that the fastest and most effective uh, and most life-changing way to approach becoming an essentialist is to work on the mindset first, really invest there, uh, and, and then the behaviors and approaches will, will follow. Yeah, and and the mindset, of course, when you're referring to it, so we talked a little bit about it. The fact that uh, of the individual choice, the act of having free will, and um, being very discerning about our decisions, about uh, realizing that everything else is a noise. And the other other story that kind of en encapsulates the mindset is the story of Southwest versus Continental Continental Light or something along those lines that Continental tried to do? Tell us the story of what Herb Gallagher did and how it all unfolded in the face of, of Continental. When Herb Gallagher was first trying to build his business, uh, he took a very unusual approach uh, and was very consistent in his approach. It was hub-to-hub -hub, uh, flights. It was no meals on the flights. It was no... Uh, seating arrangements made, and it was very consistent strategy. At first, he was laughed at because it was very different than the other airlines, and Continental uh, for years and years said it won't be successful, but then had to watch over a 10-year period and become more and more successful and increasingly profitable. And so finally, after having laughed them out, they suddenly said, well, we better, we better compete with them as well. And they followed uh, a classic straddled strategy, which is we'll do both. We'll try and maintain all of our existing services and all of our existing uh, you know, um, employees and incentive systems. And then we'll also try and just do another service entirely at the same time. And they called it Continental Light. Really, it was a uh, you know, look and feel like Southwest service. But because they tried to do it together, because they didn't create two separate systems, they all competed for resources in, in hard to predict ways. And it was very frustrating for employees and also for, uh, for, the, um, for the users, for the, for, for the passengers. In fact, they set new records for complaints per day, which is saying something in an airline's industry. Uh, and they lost $150 million, fired the CEO. This is the straddled strategy. Now look back at Southwest. Now, what's amazing to, to consider with Southwest is that if you put $1 in – each of the S&P 500 companies in 1972 and held that dollar constant for the next 30 years, so through till 2002, the company that would have made the largest return on your investment isn't Coca-Cola, it isn't Microsoft, it isn't, uh, it's, not, it's not a tech company, it's not Intel, it's not, it's not, you know, these companies that people think of, it's not Exxon, it's Southwest. Hmm. That, that's an extraordinary thing. Because normally, if you want to lose a lot of money, you just need to start an airline. And yet they were able to do it. It was 
in no small part because of the consistency with which they have pursued their strategy. Up until very recently, for example, despite all the pressure and norms around airlines going international, because that's where the big the, the big dollars are for business and first class travel, um, uh, because there's uh, yeah, yeah. because of all those reasons, most airlines move very quickly into international flights, and Southwest didn't do it. I mean, they have now. Uh, they've got some going into Canada and Mexico, if I understand it right. But they didn't for years and years for a very deliberate, strategic, disciplined reason. And that was because they could make more money by opening up a single more hub within the United States. So it was led by this very disciplined approach. So so Southwest is an example of the disciplined pursuit of less and how pursuing a singular strategy uh, and, 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 and you know, adding all sorts of levels of innovation within that focused approach uh, can be uh, very valuable. Uh, output. Yeah, there are quite a few lessons here for, especially for us entrepreneurs and for us essentialists. And uh, one of, probably one of the most profound to me was the fact that we don't. I mean, a lot of us think that somehow we have to do it all. Somehow we have to. Somehow making trade-offs is a bad thing. Maybe somehow making juggling. Somehow deciding to go big on one is actually. Um, you know, not going to allow you to go big in many ways. But Southwest is the dominant, the number one airline in the U.S. today, even though they've already decided not to. I mean, they're not international. They don't compete on a lot of the levels that the other airlines compete on. They decided this is the front. This is the battle they're going to fight. And they've been winning it again and again and again. So, well, And, and the key idea here is trade-offs. Strategic trade-offs, deliberate, carefully thought-through trade-offs. We're not going to do this. We're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And as a result of making these key, bold trade-offs and being consistent to them, you have every reason to believe you'll have the advantages that come from making those trade-offs. What the risk is in non-essentialism is to believe there are no trade-offs. So if our competitors are doing it, we need to do it. In fact, that becomes... A good enough reason to do it you know well if so and so is doing it, we have to do it you, know, you think about these competitions between different universities uh, uh and who, who are competing and they're not uh, maybe pursue, pursuing something because they really want to they're just pursuing it because their competitor school is doing it well, well we've got to do it if they're doing it we're doing it and that becomes the reason it's a it's a keeping up with the joneses strategy and so by definition it undermines the point of strategy which is competitive advantage mm -hmm. it is to not be the same as something else as someone else it's to do something distinct and different so in our own lives as with our own organizations uh, figuring out uh, you know how to decide how one will be different uh, is is key mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Trade-offs somehow have a bad name, a bad rep in this world. But the truth is, I mean, you can't really have a strategy without having trade-offs, without giving up a position. No, it's, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a truly foolish strategic idea. Uh, it certainly is a dominant assumption. I mean, there can be times when you say, of course, by doing both, we create a particular advantage. Uh, but it is a foolish dominant assumption to simply Simply say we'll do it all. Uh, it's an unsustainable position, and it's certainly not the way to become distinctive. All right. So, so Greg, I mean, 
that makes so much sense. The fact that we should not be straddling, we should not be trying to do everything. But what, 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 how do we approach this whole essentialism? Like we have this mindset, but what's the process? What, what's the big picture of how do we approach this? Well, I think that we have to begin by creating some space to explore what is essential. This is uh, this is the the thing we gave up when we moved into this hyper connected era of social media and smartphones is that every moment we used to be able to think is now consumed. Mm. Uh, so we don't. I was at Twitter recently and somebody said, uh, "Do you remember what it was like to be bored?" <laughs> and uh, it's a little ironic because they're the ones that did it to us. But you know now we have to put space back on the calendar. Mm. I would recommend like uh, holding a personal quarterly offsite, for example, uh, to really get clear on the, you know, what progress has been made over the last quarter. Mm. What are some of the trends in our lives? There's some of the positive trends or the challenges uh, identifying the two or three strategic objectives, the things that really matter over the next 90 days. And so you come away with a, with, with a, a bit of a game plan, maybe, uh, you know, even even if it was on a three by five card, a simple set of this is what's happened. This is where I've been. This is where I am. This is where I want to be. Um, mm. And then from there, I think that the second thing we have to do is we have to create space weekly to design a week that really matters. That's a non-trivial skill, in fact, in the workshops that uh, that. Um, that my company runs inside of organizations. This is a key part of what we are developing, the skill to really know how to develop a week that really matters personally and professionally. Uh, this is now, this is more in the, uh, in the execution of essentialism um, because it's all very well talking about, as you mentioned, the mindset or the, uh, or the, or the great principles of essentialism. Mm -hmm. But unless you know how to design this week around the things that are actually essential then it's all talk. So how to, to, to do that? That's the second thing I think people need to do to create the space uh, to be able to figure out what matters. Yeah. And then from that, the third thing, sort of the final thing, is, is to create a daily process uh, of, of ex sort of exploring how things have gone that day, what good things have happened. I tend to believe people need to emphasize that, a sort of gratitude list. Uh, I mean, I do this. I follow this process in my own journal. I, I keep a, a paper journal. Uh, I haven't really missed a day of doing this in certainly in five years, but, but I haven't missed many days in the last 10 years. And so every day I'm writing down here are the key most essential successes of the day to ce celebrate them. Mm -hmm. What 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 important things got done? Uh, you know, just just updates. And, and that's very uh, cathartic experience for me. Uh, and then the second thing is, okay, what are the six things I really want to do tomorrow? What, what do I think really will matter uh, that I get done tomorrow? And I put them in a prioritized list. Uh, and only half-jokingly I say this, then you need to cross off the bottom five. Yeah. Uh, because it's all about saying, what is the most important thing I want to get done tomorrow? And, and working on it. And so, so every day I'm doing this, I'm making the gratitude list and then I'm identifying the essential prioritized list for the next day. And so then when I wake up in the morning, 
I can review in my mind what what am I grateful for? I love to start with that. I love to start with that and not get on my phone. So my phone isn't in my bedroom. It's not in. It's it's away, so that I'm not pulled into that kind of trivial, uh, you know, reactive state from the first second of the day. So I I have a, a different. You know, I, I wake up. If I'm going to use an alarm, I have an alarm clock, not my phone, because I don't want to get pulled into email and noise so early on. And then I'm going through in my mind. I'm taking a few minutes to go through things I'm grateful for again, what things are going right. That's a really important priming, I think, that we can go through. And then I'm thinking again about these two or three things I've identified at my personal quarterly offsite that I think are really essential longer-term strategic objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm going back to that list I've made the night before and saying, okay, how can I now do this, these items with as much service and love in my heart, as much desire for contribution as I can? Yeah. Because essentialism isn't about selfishism. Uh, it's not about just doing what I want. It's about what the best contributions I can make. So yeah. those are that, that's a pretty broad answer to your question. So some specifics there of how we can actually uh, get around to living a life that really matters. Yeah, and it, it's 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 a, it's what what you're trying to do and what uh, you're suggesting we do is it's. It's like stepping away from the trees to be able to look at the forest and to be able to do that on a consistent basis, to be able to see the layout of the land, to be able to see the map, the territory, rather than just get so long bogged down with the details that we don't even know where we're headed. Yes, I think that's right, because we, we actually, when we got into this habit of checking our phones on average about 150 times a day, uh, the highest levels people check at about um, at about 900 times a day, <laughs> uh, which is just insane, isn't it? That sounds absurd, doesn't it? But but um, you know, in, in that reality, we just don't have the space to think. Mm. We, that's what we gave up. I mean, there was a trade-off, right? I mean, what were the advantages of the social media smartphone era? There are some advantages. Uh, one of the advantages is uh, is mobility information mm-hmm. at my fingertips uh, i can have access to people and uh, and data whenever i want it or need it at, at, at almost for free but these are advantages there are things that came from it now it's what we gained but what did we give up when i ask or groups when i'm speaking to identify what they gave up i've had answers like um uh, I, I i've given up uh freedom i've mm-hmm. given up my life yeah, I've given I up quality a, time with people in my life. That's well, what I would say. So, so there you go. So now what we have to do is we have to look at that trade-off. Mm-hmm. We have to say, is mobility and access to information of people, on the one hand, uh, that was that a reasonable gain when we were giving up quality of experience with people and relationships, freedom, my life? You know, when I think about that, as, as I weigh that up, I think, wow, we gave up a lot. And we gave up an awful lot more than we were told we were giving up. You know, when people were selling this technology to us, they just sold, um, you know, the benefits. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what I think is really striking about it is I think that more often than not, we are being sold a bill of goods. 
that what we're really being sold is that by using this next technology, by using this next thing, we will have more control of our lives. We will be able to focus on the things that really matter. We keep being sold, I think, the promises of essentialism through the methods of non-essentialism. Mm. And, and it's a bill of goods, right? It isn't true. I mean, I say this to people all the time. If non-essentialism is working for you, Meaning, if it's giving you high-quality life, high-quality relationships, high-quality breakthroughs in success and contribution, if it is delivering these things, keep doing it, right? Like, don't listen to me. Mm. If it's working, keep doing it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, how can I argue with that if it's actually producing what you want, the kind of life you want, a meaningful life and a sense of control and joy in the journey? If it's producing what it promises to produce, just keep doing it. But on the basis that you may not be getting those results, on the basis that non-essentialism may not be delivering on its promise, then you have to consider something else, an alternative approach, something different. And that's really where essentialism comes in, is, uh, is, is when, we, when we see or when we experience that non-essentialism is giving us something very different than it promised uh, on the wrapping yeah yeah definitely i mean the whole act of uh going down to the the most essential the bare minimum the the stuff that is um, absolutely required but nothing more i think uh the story of gandhi is such a great one because he had the awareness uh, to really to to be able to constantly reinvent his life in many ways to be able to constantly give up things in order to go back, and I, I, I don't remember exactly what the line was he was quoted in the book. He was going towards zero, which is um, a powerful, powerful um, uh, thing to live by in some ways. The phrase that you're referencing there, um, I read not so very long ago uh, in the reconstructed home where he lived for 23 years in... Uh, in South Africa, uh, in the Phoenix settlement. And it was in a poem he wrote. And I was told when I took the tour that it was the only poem he ever wrote. Mm. And so in that poem are these words, reducing oneself to zero. <laughs> uh, that, that's as, as succinct a summary of essentialism as I've found anywhere. I mean, this is the deeper idea, is that it's, it's becoming less and less of who we aren't and more and more of who we really are. It's about uh, becoming consumed in one's purpose, uh, you know, one's priority, the mm -hmm. singular, uh, you know, why of our lives yeah. and, and ridding from our schedule, from our mind, from our heart, all of these other competing activities that are good but not that. And when you think of Gandhi's life, he, he could have been – his whole story could have changed if he had applied non-essentialist ideas. Mm. Uh, it, it, it would have been easy. For example, uh, when he was in South Africa, he was there because he had some family emergency and he got kicked off a train when he was on the, the journey from uh, across South Africa – uh, because he was Indian and it was in the middle of apartheid mm -hmm. and he could have 
just ignored it, moved on. But he took on the South African government. And as I already mentioned, 23 years, it took him years and years to succeed. And he was successful. He took on the South African government and won. That is another word for being successful. So we already talked about this, this paradox of success. When you become successful, it increases options and opportunities. And that is just what happened to him, too. So he went back to India and literally he was there a a certain degree of fame as people had followed his story of him taking on the South African government. And so they met him at the train station and they're waiting for him. We need you to lead us here. We we want you to run for office here. And a non-essentialist would have simply said yes to that. And then the story would have been very different. He said no. Why did he say no? Because he didn't know what was essential yet. He doesn't know what is really uh, – why is it, he asks, that so many Indians can be controlled so effortlessly by so few British? He doesn't know the answer. How does he go about finding it out? He creates space on his calendar, not a minute here or two minutes there, not you know, uh, jumping between email uh, all the time. No, he goes for a year – around India, one whole year to try and understand the system, what's going on here and what is essential. And he finds in that journey something so small, just like the diamonds we were talking about earlier. He finds the diamond answer, this infinitesimally small item. It's salt. That's how the British do it. They control the production of salt. And if you can control the production of salt, uh, then you can control the production of bread and the whole food chain. And so it was out of that insight, that essential insight that the idea came clear to him that he would walk across India in a demonstration of civil disobedience to make salt on the beaches. And those marches, they became known as the salt marches. And 600,000 people followed him. And so this suddenly there's this movement that's been created because it's based in correct understanding about what's really matters here and through a series of essentialist experiments like his grandfather grandson who was beaten up once for being too white in south africa and then again later once for being too black (laughs) is angry frustrated as you can imagine and uh and and he goes in and gandhi says no you just come and stay with me he says i'm going to spend time with you he listens to his grandson an hour a day for a year and a half that's what his grandson told me when i interviewed him aaron gandhi He said that was the turning point in my whole life to be affirmed in that way. I mean, listening is really just Hmm. uh, interpersonal focus, focusing on that person. And that's what he was doing, focusing on what mattered most with all the pressures around him. I love that personal example because it, it, it tells us a lot about the level of discipline Gandhi was achieving, not just his professional or his, uh, his, his uh, symbolic uh, identity, but also how he managed to actually translate that into his calendar. Mm. That, that gives a different meaning, doesn't it, to the idea of designing a week that, uh, designing a week that really matters. That's what Gandhi's doing. Absolutely. So, so, but then, of course, through another series of essentialist experiments like fasting. I mean, I mean, I'm a big believer in fasting and the physical, in 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 saying I'm going to eat less so that my spirit is more strong than my body. Uh, is a very powerful way to apply essentialism even to our diet. Mm. To say, look, I'm going a disciplined pursuit of less. Gandhi's fasting was not just uh, was was so materially important. I mean, literally, I am actually fasting today wow. as we do this interview, and and it's because of 
wanting to really focus on something that's more important. Uh, and, and, I, and I believe that Gandhi was using this constantly in his life. I mean, we not believe, we know from his, uh, from his, uh, his accounts of his experiments with fasting. Fasting, prayer, meditation, these became the essentialist tools that he utilized to bring the largest, most powerful empire the world had ever known to its knees, and they walk away as friends. That's extraordinary. Do we believe for one second he would have achieved it if he just tried to do a bit of everything? If he'd been pulled in a million directions like many of us feel today, we know that he would not have done. It's obvious to us. It's, 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 it's self-evident. Uh, and when he died, when Gandhi died, the U.S. Secretary of State, General George C. Marshall, said of him, here is a man who has shown that simplicity can be more powerful than empires. And, uh, mm. and Einstein, Einstein is on record saying, um, generations to come will scarce believe that such a one as this ever in flesh and blood walked upon this earth. Well, yeah. we don't have to be Gandhi, but we can apply the same kinds of principles to living a life of purpose, to living a life of meaning. This can be done. And I would put to you that there's nothing more important than doing it. Yeah, yeah. This is this is so profound in so many ways. Because as as I was listening to you talk about Gandhi's story, as I was trying to understand what was going on, the, I felt like there was one thing that that kept on coming up. He was able to ask why with everything he was doing, with everything he was being proposed at. Like he was, he was, you know, if they said something, he said, "Well, let me realize. Let me." First, see if it's worth it. Let me re- let me understand why I need to do this. Because once he got to the why, it was easier for him to go and make those reason, make those commitments. And sometimes we forget to ask that really essential question of why are we doing it? What's the purpose? Yeah, what are we really trying to achieve? And does it? And and it's a, it's a very it's a very tough journey. I mean, to think that he was able to do this without any formal title or authority is. Um, is really, uh, what's the word I would say to this? It's uh, breathtaking to me still for all the times that I've read about him and, and, and studied him and thought about it. It's still amazing to me that he did this. He became the father of India. With, you know, that became, I suppose, in a sense, an official title, even though it was never, he, he never ran for any office or anything like it. Uh, I mean, at the time of his death, this is 300 million Indians are liberated, and of course now it's the largest democracy in the world. This is uh, this is this is what's possible, but yep. not what. But the non-essentialist will never achieve this. It is not what it is not going to be in there. It 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 cannot deliver on that promise. It mm-hmm. cannot. It can make any promise. But non-essentialism makes every promise. Non-essentialism says. You can have it all, yeah. all of the time with no trade-offs. That's why it's so persuasive is because, of course, if we could just have everything and uh, we didn't have to make any trade-offs along the way, well, I suppose that would be a no-brainer. We just want it all. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it can never answer on it. It's like the, it's like the, great, uh, it's the great con man of, uh, of ideas. Yeah. Uh, just, just says we can have it. Uh, but never delivers. Yeah. I mean, as we look back at the history of this world in many ways, whether it be entrepreneurs like even Steve Jobs, who who was in many ways an essentialist, he was all about simplicity and bringing it down to the essentials. Same for Gandhi, same for 
um, some of the great athletes of our times who just focus single-mindedly on one thing again and again. The examples are all over. I mean, you study the stories of entrepreneurs. I study the stories of entrepreneurs, and I see this example again and again. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, same story. He said, all I want to be is the best retailer, not the biggest, but the best. In the process, he became the biggest. But um, yeah, the story is it's repeated again and again. It's, it's fascinating. Yes, you really, when you look for evidence of essentialism, all, all you really have to do is look for anybody at the top of their game uh, over a long period of time. And you will find that they are, uh, that, that they tilt towards the essentialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, 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 that this is, that superior sustainable performance can only be achieved by an essentialist. Uh, I mean, do you go at, you look at the Olympics, right? we've just, just finished the, the Rio Olympics and you, you see uh, I mean, all of them, to be honest, right? Uh, I mean, just the fact that they are in the Olympics says a lot about what they have sacrificed and what trade-offs they've made. Uh, but then you look at someone like a Phelps, and uh, uh, and and you know, you know, we know enough of the story mm-hmm. uh, to know that this was a result of you know constant, ongoing discipline. But I tell you something I love about the Phelps story. Uh, is that he makes it look so effortless. And I'm curious about that too, because this is uh, one of the other distinguishing elements between non-essentialist and essentialist. Non-essentialists approach execution in the only way they can, which is last minute, forced, all out effort on many, many different things, trying to somehow get the things done uh, in the last moment. So it's if you're sort of falling over themselves, often, if not always late. Uh, the essentialist has an approach to execution that's much more effortless. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't mean that it's easy. I just mean that they're building a system that makes it easier to do what's essential than it would be for non-essentialists. And when you, one of the ways that they do this is by building uh, really great routines that they follow so continually so religiously that uh that they don't have to make the decision a hundred times and bob bowman uh the you know phelps coach for all these years started a a routine that's so routine now for phelps that he doesn't really even talk about himself having a routine but it starts like two hours before the race he does certain sets of swims then he goes and 45 minutes before the race, he puts on his performance shorts. It, you know, it, uh, then he sits down on the massage table, never lies down. Uh, 15 minutes before, he puts his goggles on one seat and he puts his towel on the other seat next to him so that no one's sitting next to him. Uh, he, when he's listening to music the whole time. Right before when he stands up, he always gets on from the uh, from the, the, the same side when he's uh, about to start the race. He always dries off his, I can't remember the name of it, but the... Uh, uh, where we, you know, the, the thing he jumps off into the water. Uh, he, he always flaps his, his arms in a very Phelpsian style. It's unique to him. I mean, this is a level of routine. And yeah. the power of routine is that he doesn't have to expend any energy thinking about what to do, questioning what to do next. And it goes beyond the physical routine. Uh, Bowman created a mental routine. He called it putting in the videotape. And so every night and every morning, Phelps was to, was to lie there in bed imagining the perfect race in slow motion. So this is, this is, you know, 
not just length by length, but but uh, you know, literally just each movement of his arms, one after another, until he'd had the perfect race. And he did that every night, every morning for what a decade before the Beijing Olympics. Yeah, had another four years to that before the, the London Olympics, another four years, almost 20 years. So by the time we're watching him do his final races, he has imagined these races thousands and thousands of times. That's the power of routine, is that it helps the actual execution itself be easier uh, than, than it would otherwise be. Absolutely. I mean, routines just uh, make it so easy for our willpower. I mean, you don't need much willpower when you have routines. And at the same time, it's the, it it clears up space in our mind to be able to focus on what's in hand rather than uh, distract ourselves from everything else that's going around. This, yeah, this is this is so much fun, Greg. Uh, so much learning, so so many great ideas, so many stories. But let's distill it down for our listeners. And here at Two Thousand Books, we always say there is no learning without action. So. If you were to give our listeners three specific homeworks or action items or whichever you want to cut it, and I know you do that a lot if you're training corporate athletes, um, give that to us as well, please. Well, a couple of these are repeats, but I think it's a good way to still bring these home, right? Number one, just right now, you get on your calendar and you schedule uh, an every 90-day personal quarterly offsite. You might start with it just being a couple of hours long, but eventually you maybe schedule the whole day and you can create a system that works for you. But a personal course of the offsite, that's the first thing. The second thing is put on a repeated routine weekly planning session where you're designing a week that really matters and you're really thinking through everything that's on the calendar, what you're going to uh, – what you think is essential and then also what you'd like to uncommit from, what is no longer relevant to you. Um, and the third thing to do is to really practice how to say no gracefully. Hmm. So when I interviewed essentialists, I was very surprised to find how many of them would admit to one, that they used to be bad at saying no, two, that they became really good at saying no, and three, that they got there by sort of the kind of practice you'd only think of doing in a workshop normally. I mean, these are people that would say, I used to, I wrote down how to say no, like on a three by five card that I could carry with me. Things like this. So it's actually writing out, like what about a sample email of how you can, how you can t push back on somebody. One of my favorites is to say yes with these contingencies. Yes with these provisions. And the reason that that's a, a clever thing is that you are still saying no, actually, uh, because you're saying I'm willing to do this, but only if it meets these stringent criteria or these these you know very careful things that I would have to do. It happened to me, in fact, just today. I had a request uh, to, to to do something for somebody. That the request, what they're asking for, is something that I'm happy to do, and I said that with the contingency that all I have to do is give a rubber stamp to it. I said, if it's anything more than that, if it's more, you know, process of going back and forth, then, then I need to bow out. Uh, and uh, it was a perfectly positive interaction with this individual uh, because, I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm really mostly saying no to them, mm -hmm. but not doing it in a harsh way. Uh, and, and it allows them to figure out whether this request is something that's really uh, going to be within that level of commitment or whether it's going to take more. 
so there we go. Those are the three things. Perfect. And I wonder if part of the practice of saying no to others is also saying no to ourselves, to some of the things that we come up with that we need to do or we think we need to do. Well, I like that you say that because I think that often people, when they hear essentialism, they jump to this extreme scenario and they, th- they say things like, well, I can't say no to my boss's boss. If they come to me and they ask me to do this, I can't just say no to them. And I always think, yeah, I wouldn't start there. Uh, yeah, you've got to start where you have the highest control. So start by scheduling your own quarterly offsite. Start by having a weekly period to, to, to be in. Start by practicing how you would say no uh, to, 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 to new requests that come in. Yeah. Start by, I'm now moving on to a fourth suggestion, start by taking your phone out of your room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first 10, 15 minutes of your day is, is in this experience of being grateful and reviewing what your key goals are and, and, and getting into the mode of contribution, love and service. That's the way to spend the first 15, 20 minutes of your day. It's so much better. It's so much more enjoyable for me to spend time in that mode rather than being an email and sucked into that, that trivial, stressful uh, experience and, and, and mind patterns that sometimes we can be pulled into. Uh, well, Greg, this has been so much fun. We had so many great learnings in this interview, but do tell our listeners get, how to get hold of you, where to find you online, and of course, the book as well. Uh, look, they can just go to gregmcewen.com. It's G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. Uh, and the book is available there, but also Essentialism is available on Amazon where all, and where all book, good books are sold. Excellent. Well, of course, and I listen to it on Audible, so that's another way to find it. I Terrific. Listen to it. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Greg. It's been a pleasure. It's been a joy. Thank you. So, my ambitious friends, I have two important questions for you. First off, are you just listening to these podcasts or are you really taking action on them? Because in this world, there are no results without action. The best thing you can do right now as you've listened to this podcast is to go download the free action guide of this interview at 2000books.com slash summary and start working on that action guide. Edgar Dale's research, which is now known as the cone of learning, has shown that one of the best ways to retain what you learn is to move from passive learning mode to taking action on the ideas. And that way you remember up to 90% of what you just learned even two weeks from now, compare that to 10% if you just read something. So don't let this time you invested in listening to this podcast go to waste. Go get the action guide for free at 2000books.com slash summary, or you can text the word summary to 44222, and we will send you access to the action guide. Okay, here's the second question I have for you. Are you a visual learner? Because I am. I'm a very visual learner, and I often find that the wonderful ideas I read or listen to get lost in my mind somewhere. A few days later, I just can't place them in my mind. So I started creating mind maps of everything I was learning. These mind maps make it really easy for me to get a big picture overview of a book and also zoom into the smallest possible details with a couple of clicks. Also, the ideas are visually laid out for me to see and hence they don't get muddled in my mind. You remember the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, I think these mind maps are the closest things to a picture of the book, a snapshot of the book. So if you would like to get this book's mind map for free, go to 2000books.com slash summary 
or you can text the word summary to 44222 and we will send you the mind map. So a lot of you have asked me how I consume seven books a week. Well, I do read a lot, but I also listen to audiobooks when I'm driving, when I'm working out, when I'm running errands, when I'm out running. It's such a great use of my time. And not only that, I listen to the books at three times the normal speed. Yeah, it's 3x. So I consume a six hour long book in two hours flat. I just love Audible for that. And I've been using it for years now. And right now you can give Audible a try by signing up for a free trial membership and get any audiobook in their library for free. And if you don't like it, just cancel the trial membership and you won't be charged anything. However, you still get to keep the audiobook forever for free. So to avail this offer, just head on over to 2000books.com slash free. That's 2000books.com slash F-R-E-E free. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends, go out and live a courageous life.